Good morning. It's Thursday, the 9th of November, and this is Govindraj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's smogged up financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day sharp drops in oil demand forecasts push prices lower, markets are steady. Indian companies are building almost 40% of the country's renewable energy capacity for their own consumption. Is it a problem if one company owns too many ports? India's well to do open up their purses, homes costing 4 crores and more double in sales. And Tesla may launch in India but by importing the car from Germany. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Oil demand falls. Oil prices are continuing to fall on weak demand forecasts coming in, including of a drop in US gasoline consumption. American gasoline demand will drop to a 20-year low next year on a per capita basis, according to a US government report with prices at the pump and inflation likely causing a reduction in discretionary driving, Bloomberg reported. As we've discussed in the core report, the attention has now shifted from possible supply bottlenecks owing to the Israel-Hamas war and its potential widening in the region to now whether there is sufficient demand for oil. Crude oil is now around $81 a barrel. Oil has fallen sharply in the last three weeks following the first week of tensions in the Middle East set off by a terror attack by Hamas against Israel on October 7th, now a month ago. So the markets are also unsure of China's economy, the world's biggest importer, and renewed doubts on whether the US Federal Reserve has finished tightening interest rates. With so many mixed signals, it was another range-bound day in the Indian bosses with no specific news driving stocks either one way or the other. In the markets, meanwhile, the Sensex ended at about 64,976, up 33 points, and the Nifty 50 shut shop at 19,444, up 37 points. Meanwhile, folks in Indian stock markets are looking at the new Hindu year or Sambath 2080 that starts on Deepavali, that's on Sunday, the 12th of November. The Sambath that went past or Sambath 2079 saw the Sensex hit an all-time high of 67,927 in September and the Nifty hit an all-time high of 20,022. Now, that obviously seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? But the indices have still gained 10% and 16%. That's 10 for the BSC and 16 for the Nifty. So there's something to be happy about, at least in this festival season, as we look forward to the next. Who should own a port? This is an interesting story, but let me start with the present and then go back to the past. The United States has said that it will provide about $550 million in financing for a port terminal in Sri Lanka's capital being developed by the Adani Group in an evident effort to curtail China's influence in this region. The funding from the International Development Finance Corporation underscores renewed United States and Indian efforts to loosen Beijing's sway over Sri Lanka after Colombo borrowed heavily to splurge on Chinese port and highway projects before its economic meltdown last year, according to Bloomberg. This deepwater west container terminal in Colombo is the US government's agency's largest infrastructure investment in Asia and amongst its biggest globally. It will also bolster Sri Lanka's economic growth and its regional economic integration, including with India, a key partner to both countries, the DFC said in a statement. Scott Nathan, the DFC's CEO, told reporters and Bloomberg in Colombo on Wednesday that it was a high priority for the United States to be active in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, China had invested about 
$2.2 billion in the island nation as of the end of last year, its biggest foreign direct investor. Colombo is one of the busiest in the Indian Ocean given its proximity to the international shipping routes. Nearly half of all container ships pass through its waters and the DFC said it's been operating at more than 90% capacity utilization for the last two years and now needs more capacity. The port project is set to be operational by December next year and will entail about a billion dollars of total capital expenditure. Now, some interesting background. A week or so ago, the Indian Express carried a report which said that how from one big port, that's Mundra in 2001, the Adani Group today had grown to become the largest private operator with as many as 14 ports and terminals handling a quarter of all cargo passing through the country's ports, that's India's ports. This expansion, much of it through acquisitions, six in the last 10 years, has caused concern apparently in the government, the Express reported. Computing that along India's 5,400-kilometer coastline, Adani has a presence every 500 kilometers on an average from just a blip on the country's far western end 10 years ago. The far western end obviously meaning Mundra in Gujarat. So the group's market share in total cargo handle is nearly tripled from around 9% in 2013 to about 24% or the quarter that we spoke of in 2023. Now, the central government-controlled ports have apparently dropped in the same period to about 54% from about 58% in 2013. Amongst ports that are not under the central government, Adani's port share has crossed the 50% mark. Now, all this gives Adani Ports and Special Economic Zone, the port operator and logistics company, a coastal network that rivals that of the central government-controlled 12 ports, the Express said. Now, there is nothing to dispute the facts of this as such, except to say straight away that government-controlled or owned ports have not been doing a particularly good job of managing ports, and that's precisely why they've been rightly leasing out their capacity to various private operators to manage. The only other private player, large one, in India today is DP World or Dubai Ports, as it was originally known, which operates about five container terminals in India. Two in Mumbai, one in Mundra, yes, that's alongside Adani, Cochin and Chennai, with another one in Tuna Tekra near Kandla in Gujarat coming up. So the question I feel people don't ask is, if it were not Adani, then who? Not many players have tried to get into the port business because many of them did try and then ran away because it was either too tough or the projects like Vadinar in Maharashtra could get stuck for decades, if not longer. Second, between Dubai ports and, and an Indian player, who would you prefer controlled critical port capacity in India or a hop across in Sri Lanka? Now, Dubai ports in India used to be P&O ports or Peninsula and Oriental. A British company started almost 200 years ago. Dubai ports bought P&O ports in 2006 and thus acquired P&O's assets in several countries, including in India and some six major terminals in the United States, if I remember correctly. Where, by the way, there was an uproar over that fact because the feeling was that an Arab company would own critical U.S. assets being ports. And this was in the context of 9-11. So DP World had to soon sell its U.S. assets at that time to AIG or American Insurance Group. The moral of the story, I guess, is that increasingly geopolitics is something to think about before other things. And, well, it's not something new either. That's exactly what happened in 2006 with P&O Ports and DP World, who's now back in India as DP World, of course. India Inc. is adding power capacity. One of India's largest renewable power generation companies, in a manner of speaking, is Infosys. Yes, it does more than write code in shiny glass and steel offices. A few days ago, I spoke of how Amazon in India was now managing or generating some 1.1 gigawatts or 1100 megawatts of power generation capacity across the country. All of this renewable. 
Traditionally, companies who made big, dirty stuff like steel also set up power plants alongside because they wanted reliable power, clean power, and of course, power. But things are changing. A quest for a green label and a rush to meet ESG or environmentally sustainable guideline standards and appear friendly to green institutional investors in the new world is making more and more companies invest in their own renewable capacity. And of course, it works out cheaper too. So much so that Vinay Rustagi of Crystal Research and earlier Managing Director of Bridge to India Energy tells me that an amazing 40% or so of renewable energy capacity investments in India are coming from companies setting up their own capacity. So what started as a trickle of investments five years ago now is a flood of sorts. Some of the companies are in manufacturing like Tata Steel, ArcelorMittal and JSW, but they also include, like I mentioned just now, Infosys, Amazon and ITC. So I reached out to Rustagi, who also quoted figures from the Crystal Infrastructure Yearbook for 2023, which showed that in the next seven years, renewable capacity, excluding hydro, was expected to see about 290 to 300 gigawatts until fiscal 2030, or a compounded annual growth rate of about 18%. So I began by asking Rustagi how he was seeing this interesting growth or shifts in the renewable power energy investment landscape. See, this is actually one of the most interesting parts of the renewable sector. The corporates are actually taking the lead as against the discounts and as against, I would say, even the government in setting very aggressive decarbonization targets and then actually going ahead to implement those no matter the policy challenge, the economic challenge and the technology challenge. So we see companies saying today that by 2025, in the most extreme cases, or by 2030, or maybe by 2035, they want to achieve 100% renewable power penetration, which means basically their emissions from the power generation sources will come down to zero. And what we have seen is this market really took off about, I would say, five years ago, when solar started becoming more affordable. It started at a very small pace with companies basically installing small rooftop solar systems on their factories. The next phase came, I would say, around 2018-90, when the open access renewable market really got kick-started. And as the costs have continued to come down, that market has basically gathered a lot of steam. And today accounts for the run rate is at about 4 to 5 gigawatts per annum, which is, you know, almost 40% of the total renewable capacity which is being added to the country including all sources, all technologies, etc. And today we see that the leading corporates, particularly in sectors like metals, cements, IT, etc., they are doing, their deal sizes have increased from 5 megawatts to 50 megawatts to 100, often late as high as 1000 megawatts. So Tata Steel recently signed a 966 megawatt PBA with another private power producer. Amazon has signed a bunch of deals you know, combining VPPAs and PPAs, etc. Again, the portfolio size is more than 1,000 megawatts. Similarly, we see JSW, ArcelorMittal, Infosys, ITC, Tata Motors, and many other companies across multiple sectors taking a very bold stance and going ahead with big-ticket adoption of renewables. Right, and this leads to so many questions. So firstly, when you say uh, companies like Infosys, what is the kind of power that they're generating today You, in your understanding? I don't have the latest number in terms of how much power do they consume. But my understanding is that the share of renewables in their total power consumption is, is far ahead of 
So they are actually they are one of the leading companies, one of the first movers into this space. And I won't be surprised if their share is close to eighty to ninety percent. Right. So you're saying if they're consuming hundred units of power a day, seventy eighty percent is generated by themselves, if not in the same premises, somewhere around the country. Correct. Correct. And by the way, the power does not have to be generated by themselves. They can either set up hundred percent capital units, which are owned and financed by them. or they can contract to buy from another third party which could be another private producer for example tata power or somebody like that right now what's the big change here when i so many years ago maybe 10 years 15 years depending every company at least in the manufacturing space had to set up a power plant alongside because there was no guarantee of clean power continuous power and so on or power at all in many cases so that was the situation then So, what's the change or the biggest change today? Yeah, so absolutely, that's a very pertinent question. So, the one big change is that the grid supply situation has improved quite substantially. So, the driver for corporates is no longer just to get reliable source of power because the grid is by and large uh, very stable, particularly at the high tension end, supplying to the large corporates. Today, the driver for the corporates in moving to direct adoption of or purchase of power on their own. is basically to reduce the cost one and second to reduce the emissions two so these are the two main drivers we all know that in the grid the corporate cons- consumers are essentially subsidizing the residential and the agricultural consumers so if the average cost of serving the consumer today pan india basis is let's say about 6 rupees the industrial consumer on an average pays about 8 rupees the commercial consumer ends up paying something like 9 to 10 rupees only because the agricultural consumer in many cases doesn't even pay 1 rupee doesn't pay anything at all and the residential consumer maybe pays about 4 to 5 rupees so the corporate consumers are bearing the brunt of this cost subsidy structure that we have in the grid power obviously to stay competitive in the export markets so we other companies in the domestic market they need to reduce the cost of power and falling cost of solar and wind power has enabled has opened a new procurement option for them so today any of these companies when they buy solar and wind power which could be coming from any plant anywhere in the country using the grid the landed cost of power after paying for all the grid charges etc is typically i would say between 5 to 6 rupees so as against 8 to 10 rupees that they are getting from the grid so there is a pretty substantial saving for them in adoption of renewable power and then of course the other big driver is decarbonization you know the companies want to reduce their emissions that has become quite a big and you know i think we should also say technology is a big driver because efficiencies in solar and wind technology have taken fast both technologies have become more reliable they are more predictable in comparison to the past the life spans of solar and wind plants is today some believed to be something like 35 to 40 years so i think the stability and maturity of technologies more economic benefits and decarbonization are the main drivers right and sort of addendum to that previous question so you know a company like again tata steel or jsw which is manufacturing it obviously metals in these cases now infosys is not manufacturing anything there are people sitting in offices looking at computer screens so what's the key incentive or what are the key incentives for such companies to get into power generation or do this kind of arbitrage in power cost doesn't matter which industry you are in as long as you are a big power consumer there is a very compelling 
motivation to switch to renewables. And when you switch to renewables, then the companies have to find their own solutions. Because in many cases, the discoms are not able to supply pure renewable power to them. So they have to either set up captive units or they have to go to third-party companies and then buy power from them. The motivations are, one is the decarbonization agenda. The boards of the companies, the investors in these companies are telling them that, you know, they have a very strong ESG mandate and they're telling them that their portfolio has to dial down emissions in an accelerated manner because they see the climate risk increasing dramatically over a period of time. So it is, I would say, a part of risk management for them. It is also reputation management because, you know, green has almost become, I would say, a symbol of reputation, a symbol of quality, a symbol of climate concern that these companies and investors carry. Consumers are increasingly more concerned about what are the emissions in the product that they are consuming. You know, I was just trying to book a flight ticket today and when it showed me all the five or six flight options, it showed me emission level attached to each flight. It's a different matter that the, you know, there was not much difference, but you know, that is where we are moving to. The way we want organic food versus non-organic food, similarly, uh, consumers are saying that we want products with low emission as against higher emission. And finally, I would say uh, it is a case of being ready for the future. Rather than the government and the policymakers forcing the hands of these companies and issuing some volatile policy dictates for them to shift to renewables, they are moving in a very proactive manner ahead of the policy dictates. Right. Vinay, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Gobind. Luxury home sales double in a year. Sales of luxury homes in India priced 4 crore rupees or more have risen 97% in the first 9 months of 2023 compared to the same period last year. A report from real estate consultancy CBRE or CB Richard Ellis on Wednesday showed. So the report says that affordability is no longer the sole decisive factor for home buyers as health and safety, sustainability and integration of smart home technologies have also started to emerge as key to home purchase decisions. I'm guessing that if people can buy locks worth 22,000 rupees, as we discussed on the core report a few days ago, it's evident that in this segment, affordability is not a driving factor. So in the top seven cities in India, 9,200 luxury homes were sold this year versus about 4,700 last year. In its India Market Monitor Q3 2023, CBRE said that the home sales in this festival season are expected to be highest in three years, according to the business standard. The report also added that Delhi NCR, that's Delhi National Capital Region, Mumbai and Hyderabad have emerged as the top three markets dominating sales, cumulatively accounting for about 90% of total luxury housing sales across the seven cities. Delhi was at 37% and Mumbai at 35%. On the other side, sales of affordable homes are slowing down in India as are sales of entry-level cars going by the latest number, suggesting people are not able to put together the base contribution for either a house or a car, but more so a house. This, of course, could be linked to slowing incomes, the perception or the impact of inflation, or a general sense of uncertainty about the future. Or, on the other side, maybe just an aspiration to go for luxury. Tesla's cars may come to India via Germany. Many countries, including India, are waiting expectantly for Tesla to firm up its local manufacturing plans and India is taking additional steps and going all out, going by reports 
And that's not without reason. A Tesla manufacturing plant is a badge of honor of sorts for foreign direct investment and will obviously create a technological benchmark which could make the whole EV or electric vehicle space even more attractive than what it is. Now, that's the theory. News now coming in suggests that Tesla will begin its first phase in India with direct imports from its German Gigafactory near Berlin. Now, this is a little peculiar and I'll come to that shortly. Germany is where, by the way, Tesla started making Model Y in March last year and then ramped up capacity. Model Ys cost around 38 lakh rupees there. Remember that anything that costs X will cost about 2X in India. The Bunny Control report focuses on the fact that Tesla is being dissuaded from importing from China and is instead being asked to import from Germany. Meanwhile, Reuters is separately reporting that Tesla plans to build a 25,000 euro or $26,000 car or that's 22 lakh rupee car at its factory near Berlin or rather the same factory in an attempt to obviously create a more mass model product. Reuters said its source declined to say when production would begin. So, as I'm seeing it, the 22 lakh rupee car, which should have been manufactured in India, going by hopes raised by various earlier reports, of course, all off the record, will now likely come from Germany, at least for now. We, of course, don't know when this 22 lakh car will actually be produced in Germany, like I said, because the Model Y is more highly priced. But given Tesla's general speed of execution, it could be in months, assuming the ship is indeed sailing in that direction. So if this model was going to be imported fully, then what was all this song and dance about, I might ask? Of course, the other development, including as reported by Reuters, is that India might slash duties quite dramatically to accommodate or rather welcome Tesla. Currently, India imposes a 100% customs tax on imported cars with cost insurance and freight value exceeding 40,000 US dollars. And for vehicles below that CIF of $40,000, buyers are charged a 60% import duty. Tesla is likely seeking a customs duty cut on import of electric vehicles, from Germany that is. And the government apparently feels that this is fine since several luxury car makers like Mercedes, BMW and Audi are based out of Germany. Another googly is that since luxury electric SUVs are gaining a lot of traction in Europe and India, it will be more prudent to launch Model Y in India in that initial phase rather than the Model 3 sedan which is cheaper but is only made in the United States and China according to the same money control report. So just to remind you, Model Y is about 38 lakh rupees. Model 3, or actually there is no cheap version of Model 3, so it will be a new cheap version, which would be 22 lakh rupees, all of which will cost more by the time they hit the road here. Either way, while an all-out effort to get Tesla into India is good in a way that it does demonstrate commitment to manufacturing, I'm sure other automakers who've been here for decades surely hope similar love comes their way now and then. Grounded and not grounded aircraft. India's largest carrier Indigo has said it expects to ground more than 30 aircraft in the fourth quarter due to issues related to its Pratt & Whitney engines which power most of its Airbus A320 aircraft. Indigo already has grounded 40 aircraft for similar issues and reasons. Indigo operated about 334 aircraft as of September end and is furiously leasing aircraft to keep its commitments to investors on expanding capacity and of course make up for those aircraft that are getting grounded or have been grounded. India has close to 130 aircraft as of a month or two ago grounded across Indian airports including the earlier lot of Indigo and airlines like Go First whose entire fleet is down. If we were to add the fresh lot, it could be close to 150 to 160 aircraft on ground that is again calculating at this point. India has roughly 700 aircraft in India, that is, but that includes the grounded ones. 
Meanwhile, some ungrounding news, Air India plans to reinstate most of its 30 long-grounded aircraft fleet. These were apparently grounded around the time of the takeover by the Tata Group around two years ago, sources told the Financial Express. Some 28 of these, including Boeing 787s, 777s and some narrow-body Airbus A320 type aircraft, have already been made airworthy, the Financial Express is reporting. So the refurbishments include fixing seats and in-flight systems. The latter I can totally and personally attest to the non-existence or the non-working of even on a long-haul flight. I can further attest that these were not even working or generally being unresponsive on a New York to Delhi long-haul flight as recently as last year, which means it was after the Tatas took over. Hopefully, the aircraft and the airline will be more welcoming when they return to active duty. On that welcoming note, that's it from me for today. Have a great day. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>